1: Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We have so much to talk about as usual on the show today, Um, and of course, we'll start with one of the big headlines, which is the failure of the Voting Rights Bill to get through the Senate. The failure to be able to break a 60-vote requirement to bring the bill to a vote uh, failed again. Uh, It wasn't unexpected because we know Kirsten Cinema, and Joe Manchin had opposed an end to the filibuster. Uh, nevertheless, it's another bad sign for Democrats and certainly for President Biden, who, of course, made Georgia ground zero for the fight for uh, voting rights, which he believes and many Democrats believe are being whittled away by Republican legislatures around the country, including right here in the state of Georgia. And, of course, all this comes... Uh, On the one-year anniversary of President Biden's inauguration as president, I I have to tell you, and I'll ask the panel about this, in some ways it's kind of stunning to think that he's only been in office for a year. It feels like with all of the many, many events that have happened in this past year, he's been in office for a decade uh, by now. But he's only one year into the job, and we'll look at some of his accomplishments and some of the Failures that the administration suffered. Uh, Let me introduce the panel. Uh, Kevin Riley is with us. He's here on Thursdays. He, of course, is the boss, the editor of the Atlanta Journal Constitution. Kevin, do you share my feeling that it's hard to believe Biden's only been in office for a year? I do, Bill. Uh, And uh, thanks to the last administration, presidential coverage
2: has become breathless minute by minute. It's like watching the seventh game of the World Series where the announcers are analyzing every single pitch after it's thrown, before it's thrown, and it's sort of gotten a little bit silly. We've got, he's got three more years in office uh, after all, and I think a lot can happen in those three years.
1: Um, I'm sure that the administration would agree that they have three years to recover, although the midterm elections obviously are coming up very quickly. Riley Bunch is here. She's the public policy reporter for Georgia Public Broadcasting, GPB. Riley, how are you?
0: Doing good, Bill. And, you know, I would argue that time is just a concept at this point. For all of us in Georgia and going through Georgia political scene, it seems like a week can be a year and a year can be a week. <laughs>
1: <laughs> time, Riley Bunch says time is just a concept. It sounds like she's been reading <laughs> Kurt Vonnegut novels. Margaret Coker is with us as well. She, of course, is the founder and editor-in-chief of The Current Uh, which is a nonprofit news organization that operates down on the coast at Savannah. And, of course, Margaret, we've said it before, your timing on starting the current couldn't have been better. The southeast coast, Savannah, Brunswick, that whole area has been in in so much in the news, certainly the Amad Arbery trial. But another issue you have on your homepage today, uh, a story about the ongoing fight over building a spaceport uh, down in Camden County. Um, that's an interesting fight that's not going away.
3: No, it's, it's a multi-year issue in Camden County, um, one that pits the elected uh, county commissioners against a group of very committed citizens. And on one hand, um, the commissioners think it's going to be a great job development Creator for a, uh, a working class county, but there's a lot of people who are opposed to it for for many reasons. Um, the, the not least of them are the is the environment and what space rockets uh, being shot off um, on the very precious, unique coast might do to the ecology there.
1: Yeah, um, well, we're glad you're with us today. By the way, people can read the current at thecurrentga.org. Thecurrentga.org, and I encourage you all to. Uh, do it. They're doing a terrific job down there. Tia Mitchell is back with us, too. You know, we all think here in Georgia we're working hard on following politics, but Tia Mitchell, <laughs> I don't think anyone is uh, running as fast as you are having to cover what's going on in your beat in Washington these days.
4: Well, good morning, everyone. And, yeah, you know, the Senate kept me up a little bit late last night, but um, it's been interesting to watch everything unfold.
1: Um, We're going to let's talk about the the Senate vote. But before we do, I do want to make a correction uh, based on something that I said on the show yesterday. Yesterday, we had a discussion about the Rivian uh, uh, factory coming to Georgia and what an important economic development uh, uh, that was for this, going to be for the state. I also pointed out that Rivian was mentioned in a Wall Street Journal article as being one of those companies that may be a bit overvalued at this point, that their stock had dropped dramatically, and that therefore this is sort of a risky move. Uh, Governor Kemp's fate is tied in some ways uh, to Rivian's success. But here's the correction I want to make. I said, based on old information, and I acknowledge that now, that Rivian hadn't even turned out a single vehicle at this point. Well, I got emails from several of you and then a note from Rivian saying that's not true. In the last, year, in the, in, in the last months, we have delivered 1,000 electric vehicles. So I apologize for uh, giving you some misinformation there, but I'm obviously glad that I can correct it today. Um, Okay, Uh, let's start with the voting rights bill. Again, it matters a lot here because this is where President Biden came to really uh, uh, put his uh, uh, foot down and say we are going to demand that the uh, Congress pass a voting rights bill. Um, It's been one of Raphael Warnock's uh, biggest issues since he became a member of the United States Senate early in 2021, And let's just listen, before we talk about this, to uh, Senator Warnock on the floor yesterday as debate unfolded.
5: We have been summoned here by history. This is not just another routine day in the Senate. This is a moral moment in America. And I recall the words of that great American patriot and prophet, Martin Luther King Jr., whose birthday all of us just observed. As he agonized over the difficulty and complexity of that moral moment, Dr. King said, history has thrust something upon me from which I cannot turn away. We have been summoned here, all of us. We cannot turn away. And this is no time for politics as usual. The times cry out for moral leadership, for integrity, for empathy, and for care for one another, for deep investment in the covenant that we have with one another as an American people.
1: Tia Mitchell, uh, tell us a little bit about watching that debate unfold, Raphael Warnock's role in promoting this uh, uh, important cause for Democrats. Yeah,
4: and it was interesting. I personally, I watched from home for full disclosure. Um... But I was receiving dispatches and updates from the pool reporters who were there. And the one thing that you could even see on TV is that the senators were there to hear from Warnock. And, you know, usually when senators are speaking on the Senate floor, they are speaking to an empty room. That was not the case last night with Senator Warnock. Most of the Democrats were there, a couple of Republicans even were there to hear him out and his speech you know he's the man speaks for a living he's great at it Uh, but this was one of his even uh most highly regarded speeches out of many highly regarded speeches he's given and again he didn't just speak as a senator as a politician he spoke as a pastor and talked a lot as we just heard about the moral moment the gravity of what he felt the senate was being called to do and of course the outcome was kind of predetermined that wasn't a surprise but i think his words are words that are going to live on for a long time even after you know this vote and quite frankly after this after politics moves on to the next issue
1: uh, Kevin, uh, a widely circulated in the last few days among members on the Hill was a passage from Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from Birmingham jail. I'm not going to quote it directly now, but essentially it was a part of the letter in which he calls for moderate white uh, people. Um, not, he's not going to get racist in his camp. He knows that. Um, but he says, I think the failure or success of our movement is going to be based on whether moderate whites are willing to support our battle for civil rights. And of course, a lot of that was used as uh, people watched in a disheartened way among the Democrats, cinema uh, and Manchin refusing to uh, h- uh, help uh, push this bill across the uh, finish line.
2: Well, yeah. And, you know, the Democrats uh, seized and held the moral high ground have done so for on this matter for a long time. Uh, the problem is that uh, the story of this bill is Republican opposition, not democratic failure. It's really that simple. They never had the votes to get it, That the Republicans never came around. Now the two Democrats who lingered became the story, but in the end you have 50 United Republicans who said all along, no way. And Ateo's uh, uh, right. I mean, Senator Warnock is about as articulate and persuasive and moving a speaker as you will ever get to listen to. But he's only one vote no matter how well he speaks.
1: You know, um, Margaret and then and then Raleigh, I want to hear from both of you if, but but I'd like to pose a question for each of you, and Margaret, I'll start with you. You know, I think Kevin just said something very important. <clears throat> the focus on cinema and mansion, Two Democrats who would not go along on getting these uh, bills, what is now a consolidated single bill, passed, um, has in fact taken away from what Kevin Riley talks about the fact that it's been Republicans who have been the major stumbling block all along. And it strikes me that from a political point of view, um, that's damaging as Democrats try to move forward. You know, we know that that um, leader Schumer put this bill on the floor to get people to uh, uh, record their votes so they could then go after Repu- Democrats could go after Republicans. But if all the focus is on two re- intransigent Democrats, I'm not sure they get their point across the way they want to.
3: Yeah. You know, as, as you noted, Bill, this is the um, the one year anniversary of, of Biden's inauguration. And I'm going to take us all back real quick to last March. And the White House actually hosted a large group of American historians then. And, and everybody talked it within this meeting about, you know, great leaders of American history in the 20th century, you know, great moments of breakthrough legislation, bringing up FDR and the New Deal, bringing up LBJ. And. Voting Rights Act and Civil Rights Act. And so there was a, um, you know, there was a great expectation that Biden would be a person who could break through the hyper-partisanship that has destroyed and paralyzed all of American governance. So, yes, I think it's critical to note that, you know, American democracy needs two willing parties to create large legislation and breakthrough legislation um, for our nation. And the fact that, that Republicans didn't, um, didn't break uh, party lines on, on a vote like this, uh, is is pretty extraordinary. Um, I think that from the White House's point of view, if you're if you are going to be counted among what they feel are the, you know, the, the better angels of American history, um, having this on the record as a vote for the record for the historic record is probably quite important and something that will live larger than um, the first year anniversary takeaways, as mm. all the media in America are, are talking about this week.
0: You know, Bill, it, it makes me think about a line that President Joe Biden said when he was here in Atlanta. What was that last week? Um, it was that there's 51 presidents, right? And I think it's true that the the story and the narrative has become about kind of this disunity in the Democratic Party over this issue. When, you know, it really is this Republican pushback. And I think about the impact that this has for Democrats, especially Georgia Democrats. You know, Tia said it, that there were all the senators came to see Warnock because they know how Key and crucial, Georgia senators, you know, Georgia politicians are on this issue, and I, you know, I think they're going to. Ha- Democrats are going to have to change their tune on this. They're going to have to figure out something because it's damaging for, you know, Democrats like Stacey Abrams, who's running again, that they're not getting this federal voting rights pushed across the finish line. You know, there, there's this hyper focus on Georgia, and I think that this federal narrative playing out has a specific impact on the Georgia politicians here.
1: Uh, Kevin, w- when when the president was in Atlanta last week, he uh, made some comments that pe- some people regarded regard as quite inflammatory, the way in which he compared those who were against uh, passing this measure to Bull Connor, the notorious uh, sheriff who turned attack dogs loose on civil rights marchers. Uh, and and there was a lot of pushback. Mitch McConnell got up on the floor of the Senate and said this was un befitting of a United States president to draw comparisons of that sort. And, and in his news conference yesterday, uh, the president was asked about whether he went too far in talking, uh, in, in calling the critics uh, out as the kind of racists that we think of in uh, recent American history. Here's how he responded. There's certain things that are so consequential. You have to speak from your heart as well as your head. I was speaking out forcefully on what I think to be at stake. That's what it is. And by the way, no one, no one forgets who was on the side of King or, on, or Bull Connor. No one not. Done the history books will note it. And when I was making the case, don't think this is a freebie. You don't get to vote this way, and then somehow it goes away. This will be stick with you the rest of your career and long after you're gone. Kevin, you talked on the show last week about reading uh, the Robert Caro uh, uh, volume on Linda Johnson passing civil rights, and it's so, so pertinent to our discussion today.
2: Yeah, you know, uh, Johnson did a lot less of of that kind of thing although i just have to take an aside here and i was i found mitch mcconnell that paragon of political decorum criticizing the president's words among the most humorous things that's happened in this debate because if there's anyone who could be labeled as politically cynical and a simple political power player it is mitch mcconnell but all that said uh Again, I'll come back to it. What Lyndon Johnson did when you read the Carroll volume is to the point of obsession, track the votes he had in the Senate for the bill because he knew nothing else mattered. And I think that's where Democrats lost their way on this one is that, um, you know, the, the president visiting Atlanta, the, the wonderful speeches, all of this stuff, the, the callbacks to our history. Uh, which I do think will ultimately ring true, but who knows how history will record this. But in the end, they needed 51 votes, and they didn't have them, and they never had it.
1: Tia, what what happens next? Ooh, well,
4: what happens next? So, number one, I do think that there is going to be some type of election bill But it won't be what the Democrats want. There is bipartisan support for um, a bill that will focus more narrowly on, like, accepting and counting the Electoral College ballots to clear up, you know, some of the gray areas that President Trump supporters try to take advantage of in order to overturn the 2020 election. So there will be things like saying who can challenge and how do you challenge and what's the role of the vice president in counting electoral college ballots. But um, even though there's bipartisan support for doing something, that in and of itself is likely to become partisan um, because you've got Republicans, particularly in the House, who are, you know, want to make sure they don't make Donald Trump mad by whatever passes. But that legislation will do some of the things Democrats want, but not nearly all of the things. But I think there's going to be a pivot, you know, build back better. Joe Manchin put that on the back burner, too. And um, I think there are some Democrats, particularly those we call them frontline Democrats, Democrats in swing districts and vulnerable seats. Those Democrats like Carolyn Bordeaux and Lucy McBath, um and Sanford Bishop, quite frankly, who would say, let's get some more wins that we can use as we head into the midterms. Um, that being said, though, I think Democrats at their peril would completely pivot away from election laws. Because, number one, when you look at states like Georgia that not only change their laws to make it more difficult to vote, but could do more, the concerns that Democrats have that they want to address in these bills is real. I'm not saying they're right or wrong, but it's a real concern but also the energy at the grassroots level, particularly among black voters is real. And um, if you hear from people say, well, let's just move on. They can't get the votes. Why are we, why are we focused on this? That means you're not talking to black voters because when you talk to black voters, you understand why people like Chuck Schumer and Joe Biden know that they can't just let the issue go because Black voters are the backbone of the Democratic Party, and black voters want these election measures passed,
1: period. Uh, Riley, you just published on the GPB website um, an article about Stacey Abrams and voting rights. Uh, there was a lot of talk, including on this show last week, about the fact that she did not appear anywhere with President Biden. The campaign said, well, we didn't ever get an invitation to appear. It... it But you've now published a story in which you talk about the fact that Stacey Abrams in the last couple days really got behind passage of this voting rights bill. Um, So talk a little bit about the implications of that. Certainly no one can ever accuse Stacey Abrams of not being a passionate advocate for the right for all people uh, to vote. Um, But uh, it did feel like she came to this uh, fight in the Senate a little bit late.
0: Yeah, you know, this was at a campaign event yesterday, I believe, and, and it was not focused on voting rights. It was her first in-person campaign event, um, and it was actually a labor union endorsement, a big labor union endorsement. Um, but, you know, after Biden's visit and kind of the rumor swirling of why didn't she go? Why didn't she come? Why wasn't she there? You know, Cece Abrams. It's funny for me because I didn't cover the race in 2018 between her and Kemp. So I see Stacey Abrams as more of this voting rights national figure than I think a lot of reporters do in Georgia. Like they see her as she came up through the state house, and they see her as this Georgia figure. Um, But for me, you know, watching her have this really extreme tie to the federal level is really interesting because all of this voting rights, all that the Pressure and that, that, so it ties directly back to her campaign and it's going to be such a big piece of her 2022 bid, right? Is, will federal Democrats be able to get this voting rights legislation or any type of voting rights legislation passed? So when she was asked about this at um, the campaign event, you know, she she rang very optimistic about it. And it is true. She did come pretty late to the game. What, they were doing the debate that day, right? Um, but she did have a quote where she said, voting rights and civil rights, you know, it took a long time. Um, and I thought that was a, a powerful and interesting quote, because I think that she looks more at things in, like, the long haul, right? You know, what? okay, what's next? This, this big ominous bill is not going to get passed. Can we carve out little things? Like, the Democrats are going to have to change their strategy by hearing her talk about it kind of late to the game, but still have this optimism. And she said specifically, you know, asked about tension between her and Joe Biden. She said Joe Biden is my president, right? Um, so it will be interesting to see how this federal level impacts her bid since she's now this kind of more national figure. Margaret? yeah
3: with with due respect to everything that that Stacey Abrams has accomplished in Georgia, she is a national celebrity, but she's a Georgia politician. And in the world of politics, you have to horse trade to get anything done. She doesn't have a position. She doesn't her Georgia voters aren't going to do anything for Kristen Cinema or Joe Manchin. There's absolutely no way in the world that she had um she had the power or or the influence to get uh, you know, uh, national senators to change their mind about filibuster rules. Oh. So, You know, the fact is, she is a human being. She's not a superhero. And for all of her celebrity, it doesn't count. It doesn't count, like Kevin said, unless you've got the votes on the floor, nothing's gonna happen. And the perils of not having an elective office right now, I think, um, at least the limitations, if not the perils of not sitting in elective office right now are clear about what Stacey is able to do and not do.
2: Let's be realistic. Uh, You know, about where the Democrats can go from here. I mean, I just don't see any way they get anything passed at any level (laughs) uh, that somehow improves the voting, the ability, uh, voting access or how how they in the way that the Democrats see it. The Republicans are not going to give any ground to me. The best hope they have. And I I think, Riley, um, Stacey sort of hinted at this. I'd be interested in what you think is simple. Can this drive? and inspire major turnout by Democrats, in particular, black voters? Will all of this commotion result in people being much more determined to vote and much better ground games all over the country, particularly in Georgia? And that, to me, is the only hope the Democrats really have. Anything legislatively is sort of a pipe dream at this point.
1: You know, I, I, I've got to get to a break, but that's really an interesting point, Kevin. I thought that one of the missteps... Uh, personally, I thought that uh, B- uh, Pre- B- President Biden in his news conference yesterday was when he said, based on all of the laws, Republican laws that Democrats feel are going to suppress the vote, that you couldn't count on legitimate results in the elections this year. Well, the simple fact of the matter, it seems to me, Riley, since Kevin directed this toward you, is that turnout will determine who wins the election. Maybe some of the laws in Georgia now are uh, put do put minority voters in a, a disadvantage in getting out. But in the long run, it's turnout that will determine who wins the election, not the laws themselves.
0: Well, and absolutely. And Democrats know that. Think about the long game that they have played to get turnout levels to the levels that they are today. Right. And I think that they continue to capitalize on that because that's what works for them.
1: Okay, I've got to get to a break. When we come back, we're going to look at the Biden first year and spend just a few minutes on successes, uh, failures, where that leaves uh, particularly Democrats and Republicans who are on the ballot in 2022. We'll do all that and more with our panel. You're listening to Political Rewind. <laughs> A couple of quick notes before we return to the panel. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, number one, the new edition of the Political Rewind newsletter, which is pretty new product. We just started it a week ago. It's going to come out every Wednesday. We'd love for you to subscribe, get it in your inbox every Wednesday. I, I kind of look at what I think are some of the the, the most important or most interesting issues in the news from the week that we have covered here at Political Rewind, and I try to do it with a somewhat irreverent approach at times, which is kind of fun for me, and, and I hope you'll enjoy it as well. You can uh, subscribe by going to gpb.org/newsletters, and we'd love to have you be part of that. Number two, uh, we're going to do some video again on Political Rewind uh, tomorrow. We're going to launch a new Facebook Live video feed. For those of you who have followed the show over the years on Facebook Live, you'll be able to do the Friday show tomorrow on Facebook Live. And it'll also be available on the GPB website. So we'll see how it goes in the weeks ahead. Fridays, for the time being, are going to be the days we do video. Starting a week from tomorrow, we'll be uh, showing the Friday show on gpb tv at seven o'clock on friday night so uh we look forward to doing that and no i haven't had a haircut for quite a long time <laughs> so <laughs> tune in and you'll get to see how we're all looking these days all right um margaret coker from the current is with us tia mitchell for the ajc's washington reporter riley bunch gpb news and kevin riley of course the editor of the ajc kevin riley um the real clear averages for joe biden's uh, approval real clear politics has him starting uh, a, a period of time starting december 27th through the 18th of january this week he is at 41% approval 53% disapproval a 12 point spread there are bigger uh, margins than that um so, for instance, Quinnipiac, I think, has him—I'm looking for it in front of me right now— Quinnipiac has him at a 19-point uh, deficit in approval. Um, it, his his approval ratings, Kevin, are, to be quite uh, candid, dismal right now.
2: Yeah, I, I think that's true. Um, it's especially—I mean— it, I suppose there are a lot of explanations for it. I, I certainly don't have any great insight in it, except that he, he does face a grumpy nation with this pandemic. And so let's just acknowledge that. Um, I, I will say this, though. I do think that part of what's happening in our in our environment now is we cable news networks created an environment where there was breathless minute by minute coverage of the last president because you just never knew what the guy might do and when he might do it. And it was good for ratings. And to me, that sort of carried over to every move, every word that this president does is being monitored closely. And, of course, you have a solid close to 50 percent Republican group in the country that, that is not going to like the guy no matter what. So to me, I, 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 you know, I don't know how important it will be. I think the midterm thing is, you know, for the Democrats is concerning but um, I just hope we can break out of that breathless, minute-by-minute minute coverage of the president. It didn't used to be that way before the last guy. And I don't think it's good for the country uh, to look at it this way. Tia?
4: Yeah, I think that, you know, to Kevin's point, the horse race sometimes allows us to obscure what actually is being done. It's not being done because— You know, there are people, like Kevin said, that are just not going to agree with anything Biden does, mainly because they're shaped by media who doesn't agree with everything Biden does. So it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, And that's something that the White House knows that they need to do better. Even during his press conference Wednesday, um, the president said he needs to get out more and go talk to people directly so that they hear from him and hear what the White House actually has done. Because... There are some people who say Biden has done nothing, and that's far from the case. Or there are some people who know, for example, that infrastructure bill was passed or coronavirus release money is coming to their communities, but they're not necessarily giving President Biden the credit for that. So, you know, there's a messaging, there's messaging that can improve, but I do think it's up to, you know, journalism and journalists and the media to make sure we tell an accurate story of what's going on.
1: Margaret, um, I'd really love for you to weigh in on that. Um, uh, you have uh, you're a real you're a real veteran of this business and have covered many, many important stories over the years for for major news organizations. So I'd be interested in your take on what Tia just said. But I want to add to that um, the fact that we do have to point out that Biden did pass up. Uh, Almost $2 trillion COVID relief bill under a lot of pressure from Republicans who were fighting it for a while. He was able to get the infrastructure bill passed with bipartisan support. Um, Robert Gibbs, who of course was Obama's press secretary, uh, gave a quote to Politico. I don't have it in front of me this moment, but essentially what he said, it's the best of times, it's the worst of times. He said, you look at the first half of the year, and Biden had these successes, Um, and the second half of the year, Afghanistan's chaotic. Withdrawal. Uh, the efforts to pass Build Better were a failure, and now voting rights.
3: Yeah, there there definitely seems to be a, um, a, a, a shooting. Uh, well, the White House seems to shoot themselves in the foot by not taking credit for for what um, for what they say that that they have done successfully. I mean, I was just listening into a Glen County Board of Commissioners meeting this year, where they're talking about their budget on a very very uh, micro level, you know, Glenn County will have 12 to 14 million dollars of federal funds coming to them to be able to spend on infrastructure projects. It, they will be able to uh, help um, help solve flooding problems in in um, both downtown Brunswick and greater county neighborhoods, and that is due to uh, to some of the successes that the Biden White House and the Congress have have uh, been able to complete this year, but no one in the state of Georgia is looking at it as something that, um, as the president has, has enabled them to do. Um, on a slightly different tack, I'm going to say is, is another unheralded success. You know, the um, the rate at which the White House has been able to uh, approve federal judges across the state is is extraordinary. Mm. Um, I think <clears throat> at the last count, there was, uh, at the end of the year, 40 um, 40 judgeships that were able to be passed through the Senate um, this year. That is second only to Ronald Reagan in, in modern U.S. presidential history. And, you know, that, again, is part of um, perhaps, you know, the long game that the Democrats Democrats are playing when you have not just uh, positions that are filled, but positions that are filled with with kind of, you know, regular people. I think uh, the, the statistics are about 75% of those positions went to women. About 75% were judges uh, from, from uh, you know, communities of color. They are a variety of public defenders, um, you know, criminal defense lawyers. They're not Ivy League graduates, by and large. And so, you know, that starts to change, again, on a very micro level and a statewide level, the way in which laws are, are interpreted and, and criminal justice reform happens in America.
0: You know, I think it's kind of a theme of our show, right? There's so much focus on the things that Democrats aren't getting passed, the things that they're not being successful pushing through Congress. And I, I think that, in part, it'll be interesting to see. And this is why I'm so thankful we have reporters like Tia in D.C. see how, you know, the White House reacts and pivots their strategy. One thing he mentioned in his press conference was carving out pieces of the Build Back Better legislation um, that he knows would get passed and things that, you know, that is a high-priority for him like the child tax credit um so if we see you know things like those successes being carved out from these bigger bills that aren't passing um you know it has a better chance and it has and drives the focus away from things that aren't you know on the democrat side and aren't being successful for democrats
2: yeah i think you're right riley that's what biden has to hope for that in uh you know two and a half years or two years when the campaign uh, next campaign begins all of a sudden, all that infrastructure money, as, as Margaret mentioned, is in place. And you suddenly have all kinds of things happening around local communities, particularly in key swing states. You suddenly have all kinds of people working. You have suddenly wages going up, all that stuff. I mean, I get the inflation concern. But I just think if you have lots of positive things happening and a lot of people working and, – and it is true. We have record, uh, record low unemployment um, – that that is the best hope for the Democrats – but not if they continue to let the narrative get away from them. And I, and I think that's what Republicans have done brilliantly. I mean, they are they are literally controlling this narrative right now. And if they win, you know, they take
1: over Congress in the midterms, they will be in an even more powerful position to do that. Yeah, I, I you know, it, I do think that, Kevin, it, it is fair to say that the White House has really, really been uh, done a f- terrible job in understanding how to communicate what's going on. And I think also in how they've staged their agenda with Congress. Uh, It it feels as if they've moved from one issue to the next. Um, I know that they've had a uh, uh, fast-paced world to try to navigate right now, but they suddenly took up voting rights after the failure of Build Back Better um, they didn't make that transition in a particularly graceful way. I just think that their communications and their strategy on how they decide what they're going to work out toward next really needs sharpening or else they're going to continue to fl- uh, be up to appear to be flailing a bit, Kevin. I think there's uh, no question about that. I mean, they have let the failures
2: mm. become the story, and – It's even hard to remember some of the things that Biden has done, like the infrastructure bill. It's always sort of like a distant memory in these conversations because of some crisis that happened today. And uh, I do think that um, they'll have to fix that. And uh, they have to recognize that uh, the media generally won't cooperate. I mean, the cable news networks and partisan coverage, they have every interest in following the president closely And, you know, spending hours of coverage on uh, one misspoken word. I mean, that's just reality right now.
1: Um, Before we take our final break, Margaret, I want to go back to what I started with, which was talking about the president's approval ratings, dismally low approval ratings. I wonder, in a way, if it isn't time for us to stop paying so much attention to presidential approvals, because the country is divided so sharply As Kevin Riley pointed out, I mean, you start out with at least 50 percent of the people in the country not wanting to support anything you do. Trump had terrible approval ratings, too, because Democrats thought he was a disaster. I just wonder if perhaps the approval rating ought to be laid to rest for a while.
3: Well, I think that... um yeah, mainstream media needs to stop giving it so much attention. Whether it's laid to rest, I'm not sure. But you know, it comes around all the time when it when we're talking about political campaign coverage. I mean, how many people trust political campaign polls anymore? They just prove themselves to be wrong time and time again. I'm not saying that that somehow there's a like, you know silent majority of people who think that Biden's the greatest uh, the greatest president ever. But the fact is that. Um, that we should be, I think, thinking about ways in which to make more in-depth coverage of presidential and national politics more engaging to our readers rather than focus on top-line, clickbait, sort of headline news like approval rating statistics.
1: Tia, last word before the break.
4: Yeah, I just think we need to be talking to voters more. And I'm speaking, I'm talking to myself. You know, the more we can talk to regular people and get out of, you know, the horse race, the better we'll be.
1: All right, let's do this. Let's get to the last break of Political Rewind. We've got some interesting Georgia election news to talk about when we come back. This is Political Rewind. Tia Mitchell, we've learned uh, that uh, David Scott is going to face a Democratic uh, challenger in his race for re-election to the 13th district. Vincent Fort, who was a longtime powerful Democrat in the state Senate, has decided to take on the race. It's not the first time Scott has faced Democratic opponents. Uh, Michael Owens challenged him on an election cycle, two election cycles ago, I believe. Keisha Waits, who's now on the Atlanta City Council. And, and a lot of this has to do, apparently, Uh, Tia, with the fact that uh, there are Democrats who believe that that, uh, Scott's simply not progressive enough and that progressive Democrats need to uh, push hard to win that seat?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think it's not just his politics, because quite frankly, he votes with Democrats and Joe Biden just as much as any other Democrat at this point. But it's more about engagement. He's not the most visible congressman. He's not the most active in his district. Um, He's not the most engaging with public events and town halls. And so there are people who live in his district who think that it's time for fresh blood in House District 13. Because remember, it's a Democratic seat. So even if, you know, it's not like um, down in southwest Georgia where if Sanford Bishop either retires or gets primaried and another Democrat wins, that seat therefore becomes vulnerable to a Republican. Um, It's not the same in District 13. Any Democrat is likely to win, um, whether it's David Scott or someone else. And so that just has a lot more conversation about whether it's time to get someone who is going to be a little bit more engaged in a district that has a lot of needs and issues. You know, this is a Metro Atlanta
1: district. I think this, uh, Riley, we should po- go ahead, Riley, go ahead.
0: Sorry to cut you off there, Bill. You know, I, I think it's also in something we're going to see more frequently with the democratic party here in Georgia, you know, they're, they're coming off these statewide wins and they're kind of trying to steal what kind of candidates are going to be successful in the future as well. You know, can they push a little bit more progressive? Can they be a little bit, have a little bit more outspoken candidates? And we're seeing this in the other House races, too. So I think it's important to kind of think about where the, how does this reflect where the Democratic Party in Georgia is going?
1: Um, uh, Margaret, a real quick comment to bring you into the conversation. We should say that, in fact, David Scott has worked pretty uh, uh Cooperatively with a lot of Republicans, he endorsed Johnny Isaacson in 2016. He uh, broke against his party on the George W. Bush tax cuts. He voted for them. So, I mean, he does have these moderate credentials that give people uh, like a Vincent Fort something to push against.
3: Um, I'm I'm going to bring this back to basics. This is a tactical year, right? I mean, this is not about strategy. It is about turnout. Like you said, Bill, it is turnout that is going to win races. And when you um, when you have a a, um, a representative from a district who might have a great record, but doesn't get people fired up and you've got another candidate who might get people fired up and bring them out to the polls. I think you're going with with candidate number two, no matter what party you're in. Right. I mean, that is the name of the game this year. Turnout, turnout, turnout.
1: Yeah, Kevin uh Politico uh, reported uh not long ago that there were Democrats in the House who really think it's time for David Scott to give up his uh, role as chair of the Agriculture Committee, especially before the next big ag bill is coming up for consideration, uh, because they say kind of quietly they feel as if he's slowed down a bit, that he's not quite as engaged as he used to be. But you and I both know David Scott as a guy who's always been um, the sort of person who's very soft-spoken, kind of low-key, so it's hard to tell whether there's something different happening now.
2: Yeah, it really is hard to tell. And, and I know that uh, Tia really knows him better, better than I do. But it, don't forget, I mean, the Agricultural Committee of Politico's numbers are right, has 51 members. So uh, it, that's a hard job. I mean, I, I, I uh, as someone who leaves a newsroom, I mean, uh, if I had a meeting with 51 people on our staff, I think people might tell me I had a hard time running that meeting. Uh, <laughs> so I can only imagine because when you think of all the things the Agricultural Committee is dealing with and all of the interests and all of the conflicting interests, um, you, you may need a more dynamic, domineering sort of person. So, see, I mean, you know, David, as well as uh, anyone, um, he he's he's not, you don't think of him that way. I, I mean, people are very likable. A lot of people like him, but he, he's not that guy, is he?
4: Yeah, and I mean, first of all, let's just address the elephant in the room. He is a man of advanced age, and advanced age comes, you move a little slower. You're not the most energetic at times. You know, you're not um, necessarily um, a mover and a shaker and a doer and a quick and a blah, 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 blah. And that's not to say he doesn't have the mental capacity, which is, quite frankly, using anonymous sources, what political insinuated in its article. Um, and so I'm not going there. But what I'm saying is, just age alone means his his the way he does the job is going to be different than a younger person. And so there are real conversations in Congress all the time about what that means, because he's not the only person of advanced age to be a member of Congress in a leadership role. We've seen those questions about Senator Feinstein. We've seen those questions, not necessarily about capacity, but about age when it comes to Speaker Pelosi, uh, Democratic Leader Hoyer, and um, Whip Clyburn, who are all grandparents. And again, it's not just about age, but it's about you know, a lot of questions about should Congress be skewing so, so much older than, I guess, your average American and what that means for how policy is done in Washington. It's a very nuanced conversation because we know age is just a number, um, but that is part of it, and we can't ignore it.
1: I, I w- want to get to one last issue before we run completely out of time, but I would like to say to you, As the host of a show, as a host who is one year younger than David Scott, I would like to defend those of us (laughs) in the fan stage. And I'll take any of you on in workouts any day you'd like it. (laughs) That's right. Riley Bunch. (laughs) Riley Bunch. Uh, David Perdue now says we need a new special election police force to monitor fraud. And he uses that as part of his campaign messaging about the fact that Brian Kemp didn't do enough to get to to uncover the fraud that gave the 2020 Georgia election to Joe Biden.
0: Yeah, and this is the you know, we've seen this from David Perdue, right? He's He's appealing to the very red conservative base that um, is loyal to President, former President Donald Trump, and he's hitting Governor Kemp back for you know quote not you know not doing enough against the, to decertify the election, which he does not have the power to right. The Georgia governor does not have this wide sweeping power over the election in this way. Um, so it's not surprising to see this kind of proposal. I think we also saw one in Florida this week, if I if, I, if that's correct. Yeah. Ron
1: DeSantis just proposed the same thing in Florida.
0: Exactly. So, you know, this is it's a campaign tactic. But for me, you know, when I think about this covering the legislature right now, because we're seeing different kinds of proposals about the election investigations with the Georgia Bureau investigation and things. It's I think about the frustration from legislative leaders who are going to get calls now and be like, why are you not proposing an entirely new police force? Right. You know, it's, it's, it's a campaign year.
1: Oh, Kevin, I want to give, get you in here, but real quickly. Yes, it's a campaign tactic, but it also, if it goes through, it's the sort of thing that could intimidate some voters who are nervous about going to the polls if there's some kind of police force watching precincts.
2: I, uh, I agree with you, Bill, but here's where I am. I mean, I, I'm going to surprise you here. I think we need this police force because what if a presidential candidate called up the secretary of state of Georgia <laughs> and told him that he wanted him to find 11,000. Who is going to look into that
1: when such a horrible thing, if it were to happen? That's my question for David Perdue. All right. Thank you, Kevin. Margaret, we've got a couple minutes to give you a chance to comment on this.
3: Uh, I'm not sure where to start. You know, there's, there's, um, I think that um, by and large, um, up until, you know, up until three years ago, Georgians actually felt really secure about the way in which we voted in this state. I think that by and large um, that people trusted their neighbors who are county election officials to actually count their votes credibly, people that uh, we know, not outsiders, not, not a new force with a new, uh, you know, snappy uniform. You know, Elections can run very well as long as media personalities and big politicians with big egos um, get out of the way.
1: All right. Um, That's uh, about all we have time for today. I'm leaving so much on the table. We'll take up new issues on the show tomorrow, which, again, you'll be able to watch on Facebook Live and at the GPB.org website. My thanks to uh, Margaret Coker. Of the current, thecurrentga.org. Riley Bunch, GPB News. Kevin Riley, editor of the AJC, and Tia Mitchell. You know, I was just kidding you. I don't mind my advanced age. (laughs) Tia, thank you for the words. Age is nothing but a number. So. You are you are right. You are right. That's exactly right. Thank you all for being with us today. My thanks, as always, to Jeffy ne- Jesse Neiswanger, our engineer, to our producer, Sam Burmas-Dawes, to our senior producer, Natalie Mendenhall, who, unfortunately for her, watched her bucks go down to, at the hands of of the Atlanta Hawks at State Farm Arena over the weekend. Sorry about that, Natalie. That's it for us today. We'll be back with a brand new show tomorrow. I'm Bill Nygut. Until then, please take care, stay healthy, watch out for Omicron. It's out there waiting for you. You can fight it off by getting your mask on when you're out in public, staying away from people, keeping that six foot distance. And if you haven't had a booster, Go out and get it because all of those things, the, the two shots of the booster may not prevent you getting COVID. But from everything we're being told, you'll have a far milder case. Thanks again for joining us today. I'll see you tomorrow on Political Rewind.